Welcome back to the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Whether you work for a team on the field, the ice, a court, track, or a diamond, our association gives you an opportunity to grow. You're listening to episode number 10, Name, Image, and Likeness, with your host, Bobby Hacker, the president of the Sports Lawyers Association. Alongside Bobby is Gabe Feldman, a board member of the Sports Lawyers Association. Sit back and enjoy this episode of the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Greetings, everyone. This is Bobby Hacker, president of the Sports Lawyers Association. And today, our guest on the SLA podcast is Gabe Feldman. He's the director of the Tulane Law Sports Program. He's the Tulane University Associate Provost for NC2A Compliance, Paul and Abram B. Barron Associate Professor of Law. He's the editor of the Sports Law Journal, director of publications for the SLA, a casebook author, He teaches sports law, antitrust, negotiation, mediation, and contracts. He's a long-serving member of the Sports Lawyers Association Board of Directors and a proud alumnus on multiple levels of Duke University. Welcome, Gabe. Thanks, Bobby. I appreciate the introduction. Just one update. I am no longer associate professor. I'm I'm officially full professor. My bad. No, it's not your bad. Yeah, it's about time, but, you know, I just went online to figure out titles and positions you have, and I haven't even gotten into the NC2A stuff, which is where we're going to head in today's podcast. So let me sort of tee it up. We're going to be talking today about the name, image, and likeness issues surrounding collegiate sports. And I guess the best place to start without going back into ancient history and the concept of the student-athlete as it was created 70 or 80 years ago, but it seems to me Last September, when my state of California passed Senate Bill 206 with an effective date of July 1, 23, and a bunch of other states followed, it seemed to wake up the NCAA with respect to uh, rights that may be available to intercollegiate athletics, intercollegiate athletes. What's happening, Gabe? Well, I think you're right. Certainly, California's legislation expedited things. I will say that the NCAA has been talking about this issue for a long time. And a lot of groups outside the NCAA have been looking at this issue for a long time. And the NCAA's line on all of this has been for over 100 years that they need to maintain what they for decades have called amateurism and have recently shifted to calling the collegiate model. And according to the NCAA bylaws, The amateurism model is based on the fact, among other things, that college athletes are not paid based on their athletic ability. And at the early days, back in the history you don't want to necessarily talk about, that meant that athletic scholarships were prohibited because that was considered compensation based on athletic ability. They loosened those rules until the rules we have today, which allows for a full scholarship based on athletic ability up to the full cost of attendance. But the missing piece that a lot of people have argued was the right for these college athletes to be compensated, not for playing, but for the use of their name, image, and likeness in endorsement deals, autograph signings, whatever it might be. And as you mentioned, California was the first to not only pass a law, um, but to really seriously address this issue from a legislative level. And that certainly was the beginning, the first domino. And there are now more than 30 states that have either drafted or considering 
similar laws, some with earlier effective dates, some with later effective dates, but Congress has also taken an interest in this. And there's litigation pending also in California in the Ninth Circuit on a related issue. So I think all of these things together have pushed the NCAA to issue its report that recommends that they do loosen the restrictions for NIL. Now, is this all, this California legislation, is this really all the response to the O'Banion and Keller litigations of several years ago? I think that's part of it. And I think it's also, there's just a, a growing recognition everywhere that the gap between the revenue generated by, in particular, men's college basketball and FBS football, uh, the gap is so huge between that revenue and what the college athletes are compensated. And every time there's a new television deal or a new coaching contract or a new facility built with a waterfall or a miniature golf course in it, people say that this, is, this seems wrong. We're not asking the schools to pay them. We're not asking them to take money away from their athletic department. We are just asking the college athletes to be allowed to be paid for their name, image, and likeness by third parties. And I think enough people finally realized that making that change wouldn't destroy college sports or shouldn't destroy college sports. So I think part of that was O'Bannon and Keller, who may end up being sort of the Kurt Flood of college athletes in, in terms of not winning their case necessarily, but setting in motion future victories that change the rights fundamentally for college athletes, much like Kurt Flood did for, for Major League Baseball players. So I, I think it's without question a big factor in this. But I also think there's just growing recognition of the exploitation of not only college athletes, but other athletes. You can look at lawsuits involving minor league baseball players, cheerleaders, golf caddies. I think there's just been a movement to try to provide more rights for these uh, largely underrepresented athletes. Makes sense. One of the issues that seems to be coming up as we look to a future where an intercollegiate athlete can essentially make money off, his, off of himself, as it were, uh, recently, Mark Emmert was quoted as saying something to the effect that the biggest challenge is to keep these name, image, and likeness rights from influencing how schools recruit. And I would guess what he's talking about is offers such as, well, if you come to play here, we can guarantee you so much in additional income from signing whatevers. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's there's two pieces to that. One is the recruiting advantage it would give the the bigger schools or whatever schools happen to have deals with with third parties. And I think you're exactly right. It could be whether it's a Nike or, or a beverage company or an apparel company, whatever it might be, saying to the school, hey, not only will we give you X amount of dollars, but we'll also set aside a certain amount for your quarterback or your running back or your point guard, whatever it might be. And that would influence high school athletes to go to that particular college rather than be influenced by the educational opportunities or whatever other opportunities college athletes or, or high school athletes are deciding based on. And then there's also the, the broader argument that there's a fear that if we allow the school to be involved, if we allow institutional involvement, then this will really just become a cover for pay for play where the school can almost guarantee the college athlete a certain amount of money if they come to that school. And that won't be very much different than the college athlete just paying them directly to come to that school to play that sport. And the NCAA's fear is that if that's what this becomes, 
than they have erased the line between college and pro sports. And that's not only bad for from a business perspective, it's bad from a legal perspective because that line between college and pro sports has been the NCAA's most successful defense in antitrust cases. That they're allowed to put these restrictions on college athletes, whether it's on their scholarships or, or anything having to do with their eligibility or improper benefits, that those are permissible under antitrust law because the NCAA is allowed to do what it needs to create this line of demarcation between pro and college sports. If that line is destroyed because NIL payments turn into pay for play, then their amateurism argument is destroyed and they may have no defenses left in antitrust court. So I think it's both a recruiting issue and a pay for play issue. Well, it's interesting. So with, with the issue, however you frame it, and suddenly you may have the opportunity, if you're a academic institution, to have the ability to offer a recruit the opportunity to make money while they're on campus. If I'm a five-star quarterback being recruited by many programs and one program says, well, you know, we have good relationships, you should be able to make additional, or not additional, you should be able to make some income based upon your name, image, and likeness, which raises the question, does the NCAA now need to create some kind of entity to vet sponsorship deals and how they're, and if they're kosher, I'm not really sure how you manage this process now. Yeah. So it's not been addressed directly in the NCAA's report that they issued last week, but the Knight Commission, and and I've done some work with the Knight Commission and and they came out with a set of principles and they've been looking at this issue for a very long time. Um, And I I wrote a white paper for them back, back in 2016 And my recommendation then and the Knight Commission's set of principles now is to create an independent entity that would oversee this process and that would help establish and and enforce in some ways that this has become the buzzword in this area, but the guardrails to ensure that these are legitimate deals. And and that would also work, in, in my mind at least, to vet these third parties ahead of time. So there would almost be a registration for the third parties. And unless the third party is registered, then they can't do a deal with the college athlete. And that, in my mind, would, would go a long way to protecting the institutions, to protect the college athletes, to make sure these are legitimate deals. And then they would be able to, it really could be the equivalent of a clearinghouse that every deal gets run through them. And I, and I realize that sounds like, well, maybe that's too much for one entity to do, and there'll be so many of these deals. And I think if it becomes really a standard contract, and there aren't a lot of terms to look at, I, I think it's manageable from a central entity because I, I don't think it's going to require much close looking at that you couldn't really handle through an algorithm that could check these deals when they're filed. And if something doesn't fit within the parameters that have been set, then you might have somebody look at it more closely. But otherwise, yes, I, I think you need to have a third party formed with experts that are independent from the NCAA. And that's that's a big push from the Knight Commission is to have independence here um, to oversee this process. And and I think that's a a big key to making this all work well and be legitimate and and protecting, again, both college athletics and and just as important, protecting the college athletes. So last week when the, I believe it's called the Federal and State Legislation Working Group, issued a report on name, image, and likeness, it seems to me that the push is for some federal legislation, or am I reading it wrong? No, I think you're right. I think and the NCAA has, in some way or another, 
pushed or certainly been in favor of some type of federal legislation that would provide them protection under antitrust law and employment law and, and maybe other areas of law. That because again, their their two fears are one that if they open up the amateurism model a little bit to allow name, image, and likeness payments, then that might destroy their broader amateurism argument in antitrust cases. And so they want protection that if they're going to allow this, they won't get hit one in the bigger antitrust cases is, is what I would imagine. And that two, if they do put guardrails in place here to say, this has to be a legitimate deal, you can't do it with certain parties, you can't use the marks and logos of the schools, you can't do group licensing, all the things that they've suggested in their report, that that won't get challenged as an antitrust violation. Uh, so the NCAA is in a weird spot that by offering more rights to college athletes, they may be opening themselves up to more litigation, which seems counterintuitive, but may be the case here. And then the other area of law is employment law, where the NCAA is worried that if the college athletes receive payment, they may be seen as employees. And if they're seen as employees, they'll get all sorts of rights, including the right to unionize. And they've obviously fought hard against that. So from the report, it certainly seems to suggest that they would want some protection under employment law and antitrust law to, again, give these additional rights, but not give away any more than that. That seems an interesting predicament given what happened with the Northwestern University football players and their attempt to go to the NLRB. That seems to have gone in one direction, but I'm not sure if this is an unintended consequence, but I don't know, can the university hide behind a third party making these payments? So to avoid the employment argument, is that where they're going to have to look? Well, so that's why they're, I think they're worried that the courts or the NLRB might look at it differently and say, wait a minute, I thought there was, these were just students who played sports. Now they have all these commercial arrangements, which is why the NCAA has argued in favor of prohibiting these deals in the past. So I, I would just say two things to it, two, well, three things quickly about, about your question, which is a really good question. One is, this fear was raised when there was a move to allow college athletes to be paid for outside employment. And the fear was one, that it would turn into a recruiting abuse opportunity and that a booster would just pay a million dollars to the star quarterback to, to do nothing, but claim it was for a job. And that two, this might start to look like more of an employment relationship, but, but that really never played out because this is a relationship between a third party and the student. And the third the students are allowed to have employment relationships with third parties. That's not the question. The question is whether they're employees of the university. But that said, I think if this does go unregulated and it really turns out to be payment from the third party to the college athlete that was initiated with the institution or institutional involvement, then yes, I think there might be an argument that, wait a minute, you're actually getting paid by the school. What's the difference between the school paying you directly and then you just funneling it through the third party? That's where I think it does raise a risk. And then the last point I'll quickly make is, is you're absolutely right. I mean, the Northwestern petition is something that the NCAA obviously had to deal with and has to deal with the prospect of another one of those petitions coming down the road at some point. But they're also dealing with, as we talked about, state legislation that is pushing to allow or require college athletes to have the opportunity to get these deals. Then you've got potential federal legislation. Then you've got these pen pending antitrust suits. Then you've got the public outcry. You've got the media. Um, there are a lot of different external pressures that the NCAA is dealing with. And so, so the analogy I've made is, one, they're trying to thread a needle through all of this. 
but two, in a way, they're they're juggling fiery knives that it's really hard to make sure that you're satisfying California and Colorado and Florida and whatever state comes next and Congress and not turning around and having Jeff Kessler and the plaintiff's lawyers use the changes that you're making in court against you in the in the Alston case and the Jenkins case that might follow. Um, and then plus, you've got the media and everybody else claiming that the NCAA is exploiting college athletes. So it, it's, you know, it, it's the old saying is you can you can never make everybody happy or whatever that saying is. Um, and I think the NCAA is, has realized that for a long time. But now there are some significant legal implications if they don't satisfy all these parties. So do you think there's a threat to the continuing existence of the NCAA? I mean, does this raise the possibility that, let's say, hypothetically, the Power Five say, you know, we want to maintain the best athletes. We want to be able to take care of them. What has the NC2A done for us lately? We'll just form our own separate organization. Yeah, I mean, that that's certainly possible and there's been talk of that and there was there was talk about that and, and a move to do that in the 80s when the when the cfa the college football association essentially broke off from the ncaa to do their own television deals because they didn't like the ncaa's restrictions um and then the ncaa threatened to suspend them from all of their sports competitions which is what led to the supreme court case it's possible that the big conferences might say we don't need you ncaa we'll go play our own football our own basketball but then the question is, what about all the other sports? Are they going to bring all the other sports in there with them? And if they do, they're going to need somebody to govern them. Whether it's the NCAA or some other acronym that gets created, someone has to oversee college athletics. It's the NCAA, and, and I know it's not popular to defend them, but, but they get a lot of criticism in part because somebody has to do this. Somebody has to govern the schools, and it's the schools that are coming up with these rules. So... Yeah, the NCAA takes a lot of the blame, but there is no NCAA and there are these restrictions don't exist unless the institutions within the NCAA wanted them. But all that said, yes, the school certainly could, the Power Five or even a subsection of the Power Five say, the NCAA has outlived its usefulness for us in terms of big time football. So we're going to create our own super league. Um, again, I think there are a lot of challenges to that. and I And I think one of them that gets overlooked a lot is part of the fun of college football is you have the big schools playing the small schools. It's fun to see the national championship game and it's, it's fun to see the, the playoffs, but it's also fun to see the games throughout the year where you get the upsets and you get the little schools versus the big schools. I think that's what makes college athlete, uh, college football special in a lot of ways. Same thing with college basketball. So you potentially lose that if you break off, but I think with the NIL deals changing and the media landscape changing, and given that we're in the middle of a pandemic, this might be the time for certain schools to say, look, if we're ever going to do this, let's do it now, uh, which would put even more pressure on the NCAA to make changes that satisfy these schools. Yeah. And, you know, I've read in some articles discussing this, and particularly since the release of the report last week, that one of the concerns, I believe, being expressed by the NCAA is that the compensation be at an appropriate rate. And I've seen that phrase used a couple of times, the appropriate rate. I mean, that seems pretty wide open. And is that just an effort to try to show that they can exercise some control over the process? Yeah, I think, so the, the way that this has been discussing, and this was part of the Knight Commission's principles, is that I, I think about it more broadly as these have to be legitimate transactions. 
And let's just use an extreme example that I think most people, not everyone, but most people would say shouldn't be allowed. If a booster of whatever your favorite school is wants to pay the star quarterback a million dollars to sign one autograph and says publicly, I was not doing this deal because his autograph was worth a million dollars for me. I was doing this because I wanted this athlete to play football for my favorite school. I think most people would agree that that shouldn't be allowed because that's not a legitimate payment for a name, image, and likeness. That's just paying the athlete. And so if we agree that that shouldn't be allowed, and again, I get that some people think that that's fine, just let the market dictate who's going to pay who what. Um, But if we agree that that shouldn't be allowed, the question is, all right, then how do we regulate this for the, the, the extreme cases like that, but, it, but also for the closer cases? Because there are not going to be a lot of examples where someone's paying that much money and admitting that they weren't doing it because of the name, image, and likeness. They just wanted to pay the athlete. But I think you can come up with, or we can, or one can come up with a framework to establish a broad market range and look to see, are there any indications that this was not a legitimate transaction? And there are other regulated markets that exist inside of sports and outside of sports. And that, that's all I think that the Knight Commission and others are asking for here is just to make sure that these are legitimate deals for NIL and not for playing directly or for whatever else it might be. And, and that's, I'm not saying it's an easy thing to solve, but that's the goal. And the analogy, and, and I get it, there's a, I get a lot of pushback when I use this analogy, but I'm going to use it. If you look at the pro sports leagues, the ones that have salary caps are are major pro sports. They have strict anti-circumvention provisions because they are very serious about owners not paying more than the cap number or paying more than a maximum salary is allowed under the CBA. And so if there is evidence that one of the owners has either set up a deal for the player or is paying them under the table, then that's going to be punished and punished pretty harshly. And we saw an example of this with DeAndre Jordan recently, where it turned out that I think it was the Clippers had negotiated or arranged an NIL deal for him that was not a legitimate transaction. And the NBA didn't allow it. So is it easier to do when you have only 30 teams and it's the pro level? Yes. I'm not, I'm not suggesting it's as easy to do as it is at the pro level, but it's done. And I think it can be done at the college level. And I think if it's not done, and I don't suggest doing this to deprive college athletes of what they're, what they're worth. I am as big a supporter as anyone as, as making sure these college athletes are given the full value for their NIL. But if we don't provide some guardrails, I think the system will be abused and might collapse. Um, and then I think everybody would be worse off. So all I think that should be done, and again, I think a lot of people are, are, are supporting this idea, is just make sure that these are real arm's length transactions. Don't second guess whether the guy should or the woman should have gotten 21,000 versus 22,000, but do look at it if they get 20 million instead of 20,000. That makes perfect sense. And hearing you talk and using this expression about guardrails, which seems to be what everybody's concerned with, you know, what are the limitations? How do you control them? How do you protect against antitrust litigation among many other things? Do you do you see that this proposed NC2A drafting of legislation, which I think late in the fall is when they're expecting to deliver something, looks something like the uh, Stevens Act was sort of late to the Olympics so that you get sort of some antitrust protection built into it and special 
rules that might otherwise not be legal? Yeah, I think that that's one possibility. And I think that's either good news or bad news, depending on your perspective, because some people think the Amateur Sports Act needs to be scrapped or rewritten or that just the, the model needs to be um, redone or at least the execution of it. So that that's not exactly a, a perfect answer, but that could be an answer to set forward a legislative framework that would govern college sports, much like Olympic sports are governed by the Amateur Sports Act. So yeah, I think that's absolutely a possibility. And it may expand some of the rights that the NCAA gets um, or the, the freedoms they get to do certain restrictions, but it also may put some limitations on them. And so uh, my hope would be if there is any federal legislation that it would it would make sure that this is a two-sided deal, that it's not only the NCAA getting protection under the law, but it's also the NCAA agreeing to do a variety of things, including making sure that every college athlete has the opportunity to get a meaningful education. And you know, we've seen what happened with the UNC case and, and where the NCAA just has limited jurisdiction over some of these things, putting a federal entity in place to have jurisdiction might make sense. It might make sense to make sure that the NCAA and the institutions are held accountable to some organization that, that can have oversight. So yeah, that, that's certainly a model. I mean, and there's a, there's a high regulation model, there's a mid-regulation, a low regulation, and a no regulation model. Right? There's lots of different options, but mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right that the amateur sports, amateur sports that could be a model they could follow. So now if we get to the point where student athletes and I have trouble even saying that oftentimes, but where student athletes are now being given the opportunity to make money off of their name, name, image, and likeness, it seems if you follow the natural progression, it raises the question about why wouldn't they have the right to use lawyers or agents, and how does that get around all the prohibitions against the use of agents to maintain eligibility? It's a great question, and... The if you look at the NIL report does reference this and, and the Knight Commission references this as one of their main principles, which is to allow the athletes to have third party representation. I, I think as as much as people recoil at that notion sometimes, uh, I, I think if you if you really take some time to think about it, I don't know how you can have any other solution. You, you have to have someone representing these college athletes no matter who you are, no matter what level you are, no matter how old you are, most people need some representation, some help in dealing with sophisticated third parties. And so I I just think it would be foolish to take the people who might need it the most, these young 18 to 21 year olds. uh, And this is not to sound paternalistic. Again, this is, I think everybody should have a right to to hire an agent or a lawyer. I, I think you have to do it. I think most groups now recognize that you have to do it. And the question is, how do you do it? And how do you monitor them? How do you regulate them? Um, how do you ensure that this doesn't turn into what the NCAA has feared for a long time, that the agent has too much influence over the college athlete? And all of a sudden, rather than going to class or even going to practice, they're focusing on their NIL deals because that benefits the agent and therefore the agent is pushing the college athlete to do it. That's a legitimate concern. I don't discount that concern. So I think it's important to, again, provide some oversight into this process. And that's where that third party can come into play again, that they can 
not only oversee the NIL deals, but also oversee the agent representation because the analog to pro sports, again, it's not so easy because pro sports have a union and the union has delegated its right to represent the players in contract negotiations to the agents. Well, we don't have the union in college sports. So who's going to represent the players? Who's going to re- represent the college athletes? There's, there's, I think there has to be an answer to that because we, it, it's just not fair if it's the institution doing it, because again, that starts to look more like an employment relationship. Um, and there's also obvious conflicts of interest there. And it's not fair to have them do it on their own. You know, I'm just asking your opinion here that if, let's say, for example, I'm one of the big player agents in pro sports, and all of a sudden, you know, I've got three first round draft choices in the recent NFL draft. And I'm hired by Joe Blow, who's the quarterback at State Tech. How do you not see that I have potential influence over that player beyond this name, image, and likeness deal I'm going to help him with? I now have a continuing relationship and sort of a foothold in the door as the representation for this potential professional athlete down the road. It seems a huge conflict. And do you know if this has been addressed in the proposed legislation or the discussions by the committee? Not not at that level of detail. And I, I think it's been one of the fears of the NCAA for a long time. And in the the Rice Commission that came out of the their report that came out of the college basketball FBI scandal, they recognized that they needed to loosen the agent restrictions to allow some of these players to have agent representation. So that, that door has already been opened by the NCAA. And the question is, how do you do it in a way that doesn't lead to not only harm to the athlete and to college sports, but also, to, as you said, to conflicts of interest and potentially uh, legal issues or moral ethical issues. And I, I don't know that there are easy answers to that, but I think it can be handled depending on who you allow to represent the players. So you, you could say you can't represent both. You can also, I think, look at it one way that a lot of people are looking at it is that the agents already have influence over these players. It's just all under the table. And the FBI scandal, I think, revealed that for a lot of people, that they're already there. We just don't know about it. Or it's just not being regulated. So maybe this is the old sunshine is the sunlight is the best disinfectant it's already happening. Let's, let's bring it out in the open and then we can at least have some control over it. But I, I think most people would say at the top level, and I'm not suggesting this is the case at the lower levels or in the Olympic sports, but at the top level, there are certain agents that have influence over programs within institutions or certain athletes or certain coaches. This may make it worse, I grant you that, but it, or make it more prevalent, I should say, but at least would make it easier to regulate. Another area that may touch upon this whole name, image, and likeness issue, and one which seems to be a little bit more in the ether, is in the world of the influencer, a word I probably didn't use a year ago. So you've got social media influencers who get paid a certain sum generally and then make money off of the number of likes or hits or click-throughs to purchase whatever it is that they're promoting. Is that contemplated, that kind of uh, relationship contemplated and governed by these proposed new regulations? Yeah, well, so I I would say two things to that. One is in terms of the NCAA's report, it, it really presents a lot of questions and doesn't give a lot of answers. And it leaves the answers to the individual divisions to come up with the final legislation subject to approval. 
So we don't have any answers or many answers to what it will look like and what will be allowed. We do have some answers on what they don't want to allow, including group licensing deals and the use of the institutional trademarks, even if the institution gives them the right to use it. Um, so that's just a sort of broad answer to, to all the questions. And then specifically in, in terms of the, the internet influencer, yes, absolutely contemplated and complicated, but it's, it's contemplated by the NCAA's report and by the Knight Commission. And I think there's a recognition by a lot of people that the largest number of NIL deals will probably be these social media deals. The Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, whatever it might be. It may not be the largest in terms of dollar amount. Those still may be the, the more traditional endorsement deals where you're doing a television commercial or a print ad, whatever it might be. Those might be the big, big, big dollar ones. But the, the assumption is that that will be available to only a relatively small number of athletes. Whereas the TikTok or YouTube or whatever the sites are that aren't, that aren't even know about Cameo, that there are, already a lot, there are a lot of people who are influencers on there who many of us have never heard of, but have popularity in that world. And if college athletes had been given the right to be influencers, they'd be influencers right now. And so, I, yes, I think the contemplation is not only would it be allowed, but that may be the greatest opportunity for the greatest number of athletes. And with regards to these proposed commercial deals, has there been any discussion about what I, for purposes of our discussion, will call a hybrid deal, which is one where an advertiser says, will or a sponsor will say to the school, we're willing to give you X million dollars if you can deliver so-and-so athlete to whom we'll pay Y dollars. Both the NCAA report and the Knight Commission have made it clear, and this is one of the Knight Commission's primary principles, that there cannot be any institutional involvement in these deals. And I think that would fall, your, your hypothetical would fall squarely in institutional involvement, that you cannot do a joint deal like that. You can either, if you are a third party, do a deal with the college athlete and only the college athlete or the institution. And you can do both. You just can't do them together. So Nike could have a deal with Duke and then Nike could have a deal with Zion, but those can't be part of the same deal. And Duke can't be involved in setting it up. Duke can't deliver the athlete. Duke can't make any promises. They can't arrange for it. They can't do anything because the fear is if Duke is involved, then um, not that Duke would ever do anything untoward, but if Duke was involved, then it presents the possibility of pay for play or recruiting advantages and all the things we've talked about. So they're, they're trying to keep the institution out of it. And there's a lot of pushback on that because people look at the, again, the pro model and the more traditional models. And for a lot of these athletes, they're not recognizable unless they're wearing their Jersey or, or identifying themselves as an athlete from whatever team. And so the fear is if you don't allow them to partner with the institution, it's going to, eat into the most valuable deals. And I think there's something to be said about that, but the Knight Commission, the NCAA's response has been, that's going to make it impossible to draw the line between pay-for-play and NIL deals. So we can't allow it. Yeah, it seems that, you know, in looking at it from the outside where I sit, the big money, however we're going to define big money for purposes of this discussion, is going to be limited to very few athletes. And that's for a variety of reasons. When you think about it, how many collegiate athletes 
have an identity independent of their school. You named one, Zion was one of those transcendent characters who people might have known he was at Duke, but they just knew he was this extraordinary basketball talent and he had a very memorable name. But the majority of these college athletes are not going to be part of this money train, if it is in fact a money train. And a lot of effort is being put into what may be a very, relatively very small set of student athletes. Is it worth all this tumult? So I would, I would say two things. It's a, it's a great question. And I would say one is you may be right that it's going to impact a relatively or benefit a relatively small number of college athletes, but I would broaden it a little more than the Zion deal or, or the Johnny Manziel or, or pick your favorite well-known college athlete who, as you said, sort of was bigger than the school or the NCAA and had name and face recognition beyond college sports. There aren't many of those people. And there aren't many of those people, frankly, in sports general, not just, not just in college sports. And, you know, if you take a, an NFL running back out of his uniform, take Saquon Barkley, probably a lot of people would not recognize Saquon Barkley out of his uniform. I would expand it to suggest that there, would, there will be an appetite, and I don't know this for a fact, but, but based on what I've seen, I believe there will be an appetite for small deals at the local level for a fair number of college athletes. Because if you go to any small town, college town, whether it's, it's Baton Rouge, not that Baton Rouge is necessarily a small town, but you, you know what I mean, any, any small college town, the college athletes there are heroes. And people treat the college athletes like pro athletes. And they go to baseball games, and they go to swimming events, and they go to lacrosse events, and whatever they might be, and they know who the star players are. And my sense is that some of the local companies there, whether they're related to sports or not, would get a benefit from an association with those college athletes. And if you've got a star swimmer at your school, I think that star swimmer will probably have the opportunity to do an NIL deal. It may not get them hundreds of thousands of dollars, but maybe it gets them $10,000 or maybe it gets them apparel or, or whatever it is. Um, and maybe the local hot dog place, but whatever it is might say, Hey, do a quick ad for our restaurant and you get free meals here or you get 10,000 bucks or whatever it might be. I, I think there might be more than of those deals than we suspect. And then the other is um, on just the internet influencers. I, I do think there will be a lot of internet inf influencers. I don't know what makes someone an internet influencer. I have not been able to figure that out. I've been told that these people are famous and I don't, I ask why. And then I'm told because they're on the internet and you know, we're used to, you are famous because of this thing you did, not just you're famous because you're famous. So I don't know what the formula is, but, but I'm pretty sure if not to call her out on a podcast, but if Lori Laughlin's daughter can be an internet influencer, then the star gymnast at UCLA can be internet, internet influencer and get paid some money. Uh, so I, I think it will impact a larger number of college athletes. And if I'm wrong, and, and I, I will admit that I can be wrong. And if I'm wrong about this, then I would say it's not necessarily much ado about nothing. I would say, then why are we so fearful of allowing these rights? Why have, been we, why have we been prohibiting them for so long if this is only going to benefit a few? And if it's only going to benefit a few, why is that going to be so hard to monitor? Why don't we just go ahead and do this? 
and then look closely at the 20 athletes who are getting these deals. So I think it's either going to benefit a lot of athletes and we have been depriving them of them of their rights for a long time, or it's only going to benefit a few athletes and we don't have that much to worry about because not much is going to change. As we've been talking, Gabe, I feel like there's a sweater in front of me and I keep pulling threads off of it. I could pull threads off of this one for hours and hours, but there's a couple of things. One is, does the school carve out its apparel deal that says, we're a Nike school. If Puma comes to you and wants you to do a Puma deal, even though you're not wearing school gear, we're going to be able to prohibit that. I don't know what the answer is to that. And the second bigger issue that has been on on the top of my thought process is the school's fear that they will be losing some of its ancillary income that would have gone to the schools, but it's now going to the athletes. How does that in turn impact athletic department budgets? And then we can keep pulling the string from there. But comments on those two thoughts? Yeah, no, they're great questions and they're, and they're certainly related. And in terms of the potential conflicts, there is discussion in the NCAA report that the institutions will be allowed to decide how they want to handle conflicting sponsor deals. So if they're a Nike school, can the college athlete do the Adidas deal? And the only additional comment I'd say on that is this is not an issue unique to college sports. This is something that the Olympic world has to deal with all the time, where the team may be sponsored by one company and the athlete likes to use some other company's apparel. And this came up with the Dream Team way back in the day. You remember the the American flag over the Reebok logo? There are ways to figure this out. And California's legislation, Florida's legislation does mention this specifically. The thought is we want to allow the schools to protect these deals because these deals are lucrative and they're, and they're valuable. And if this ends up being the, not quite, but sort of the equivalent of ambush marketing, that it, that it dilutes the value of these deals, then that's problematic. Uh, others say, why is that problematic? The money should go where it's valued most. And if the third parties want to pay the athletes more than the schools, they should pay the athletes. Again, putting aside that debate, uh, I do think there will be protections put in place, and this is certainly an area that the NCAA is looking at. Um, the Knight Commission's answer to this has been allow the conflicting deals, but just don't allow the marks to be used by the college athlete. So the college athlete will be paid for their name, image, and likeness, but not because of their school's logo. Um, and then I think this leads directly to your second question, which was was raised um, both within the Knight Commission and, and beyond in terms of will this harm the revenue generation ability of the athletic departments, particularly now that we're facing a budget crisis in many industries because of the pandemic. Um, and, and my answer is the two quick parts to the answer. One is it may a little bit. It may, let's say that Nike had whatever their budget is to do a deal with Alabama, and then they decide to only give 90% of that to Alabama and 10% of that to the college athlete. That may happen. I, I don't know. Um, but even if it does happen, that money is such a, a relatively small piece of the overall budget of these athletic departments that I don't think it would actually hurt them. I don't think it would threaten the viability of athletic programs or of the Olympic sports. Uh, I, I don't think it's a, it's a real concern. I think it's a concern that's been expressed, but I don't think it's a real threat. Assuming it even happens, I just think it would be such a relatively small amount of money because as the NCAA has long said or argued within college sports, it's more about the front of the jersey than the back of the jersey. If that's true, 
then the third parties are going to continue to pay the schools whose names are on the front of the jersey and not the athletes whose names are on the back of the jersey. So let's let's see. They've they've argued that for a long time. Let's see if that's actually true. Yeah, I think that you know my personal thoughts on this is that in the local market, there seems to be a play for the athlete. So if you know digital area around the University of Georgia, and Jake Fromm is doing a commercial, it's interesting in a local market. Are these college athletes? How many of them really have a national presence? Right. You know, my guess is that a lot of this will be local deals. And the number of big national deals will, just by the nature of the sport and your comment on front and back of the jersey, probably not be as big an issue as it might otherwise seem to be. But I guess we just need to wait until October or whenever the proposed legislation shows up. And I think this is a fascinating issue for all of us to keep our eyes and ears open to. And I know that you're in the front lines of it, Gabe. Uh, any closing thoughts for us or things that we should be looking out for over the coming months? Yeah, but one, just thank you for, for doing this. Always fun to talk to you and always fun to talk about this topic. And, and two, I would say, I'm glad that we are at the point now where instead of asking, should college athletes be paid for the use of their NILs, we are asking, how should they be paid for the use of their NILs? That's a, that's a major step forward, no matter what comes from here. And then, and then just related to that, um, I don't doubt, and I, and I know there are many within the NCAA who genuinely believe this may lead to harmful consequences, intended or unintended. And I don't doubt that some of those consequences may come to bear. But where I fall out on this is that those consequences, with just with regulated NIL deals, are outweighed by the benefits that will flow to college athletes for being able to receive value for the, the well, to be able to receive money for the value they've created in their, in their right of publicity. I think it's long overdue. I think there will be bumps. I think there will be issues. But I think those are things that can be handled with the details, and they are not worth preventing these college athletes from getting the rights that every other, other, every other student has on campus. Professor Feldman, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us today. For those of you that want any more information about this, you can Google Gabe Feldman and you'll see all kinds of articles and things he's written. You can also follow us at sportslaw.org, the Sports Lawyers Association website where you can find all kinds of great content and where these podcasts will be housed. Thank you again, Gabe, for the time today, and we'll talk soon. Uh, thanks, Bobby. Be well. Thanks for tuning in today. Feel free to share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Sports Lawyers, or find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. And be sure to be on the lookout for more podcasts.